Hi guys and happy Monday. I am so excited for this episode with Nash to finally be out because when I tell you that this was one of the favorite episodes that I've ever recorded of all time and I've had this podcast since October of 2019 for any new listeners. So that's going on four years. So that's, you know, I'm not just saying that this, like this was seriously one of the most meaningful recordings I've ever done with anyone in my entire life um, for a number of reasons. I mean, for one thing, I've been wanting to have a conversation about boarding school and just the adolescent experience in general for a really long time. And I was really able to do so with Nash. I mean, although we didn't go to the same high school, I think our experiences at Lawrenceville and um, St. Andrews respectively had a lot of parallels and we were able to relate a lot. And although, you know, I mean, St. Andrews was one, were three of the best years of my life. Um, it was also a very painful time and I have so many ties to memories and people from my high school. And there's also been a lot of love and a lot of loss that has happened since I graduated in 2014. Um, so all that is to say that this conversation means a lot to me and I really hope that everyone tunes in and, and can relate a little whether you went to boarding school yourself, just whether, you know, like your own high school experience was as, you know, profoundly altering to your, the rest of your life as it was for Nash and me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I hope you take something from this episode and I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts because, I mean, I know for a fact that this is one of the most beautiful episodes that I've ever been able to record solely because Nash's vocabulary is absolutely insane. Like he has words that he has like in the back of his mind that he can just like think of and throw out that I literally like clearly he did really well on his writing portion of his SATs is like how I'd put it. Um, But yeah, without further ado, I don't want to talk too much. I hope you all listen. I hope you all enjoy. And I hope you all buy his book because if you think this episode is great, just like, even though it was 600 pages, I'm telling you, I read that book in like two days. It was just the most like page turning, beautiful piece of literature I've read in so long. So make sure to buy Foster Date Explores the Cosmos either before or after you listen to this episode and either way enjoy this conversation with Nash because I know I did hello everyone and welcome to another episode of solace and the city Today, I am so excited to be here with Nash Jenkins, who is one of the most interesting and accomplished alums from Johns Hopkins University that I was lucky enough to overlap with, sadly, just for a year. Um, But Nash worked as a correspondent for Time Magazine and has been published by The Atlantic. He received his master's in arts from the University of Chicago and is currently a PhD student in media, technology and society at Northwestern. And most importantly for this interview, Nash is the author of a new book called Foster Date Explores the Cosmos, which I read and can honestly say was like one of the most beautiful books I've ever read in my life. And I'm a big reader. So Nash, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so nervous, but this is fun. 
No, just like another Elmo's savage. <laughs> oh God! Just yeah, kidding. yeah. Well, let's 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 hope not. Um, but no, seriously, thank you, thank you so much for having me. I'm pumped. So I don't. Why don't you tell me and the audience a little bit about yourself? Like, where are you from? How old are you? You already said you you know went to Hopkins. What did you study there? Where do you currently live? What's your story? Sure. Well, I'm mortified to admit that I am now 30. I turned 30 in January and I try not to think about it. Um, but yeah, so the the sort of brief synopsis of my biography, I grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, and like you, I left in the middle of my adolescence to go to boarding school, in my case, in New Jersey. Um, so I went to the Lawrenceville School. And after graduating from Lawrenceville in 2011, I uh, moved down to Baltimore uh, to make my home at the illustrious Johns Hopkins University, where I had the privilege of overlapping with you for one year. Um, but yeah, so at Hopkins, I was in the creative writing program, the writing seminars. And I'd known, I mean, God, pretty much since like third grade that I wanted to spend my life writing and writing fiction was always the dream but eventually I came to see journalism as like a very practical way to like monetize my mm -hmm. writerly aspirations right so you know I did a lot of writing at Hopkins and um got incredibly lucky and ended up in Hong Kong after graduating from college in 2015 um as a writer for the Hong Kong Bureau of Time Magazine. Um, so I was in Hong Kong for two years straight out of school, which was like surreal and dreamlike. I mean, I was just like this 23 year old kid jetting around Southeast Asia to write these like 3000 word magazine stories. Uh, and it was fabulous. And then in 2017, I was promoted to the Washington Bureau, where I served as the congressional correspondent for a year, uh, which was slightly less fabulous, solely because I was covering politics in the first year of the Trump administration, and it broke my brain. So I did that for a year and decided to return to like a long dormant interest in academia. Um, I went to the University of Chicago and got my master's there and fell in love with um, like the academic study of media, decided I wanted to get a PhD. Uh, after my master's, applied to PhD programs, didn't get in anywhere, and then COVID happened, uh, which is when I found myself finally returning to my book, which I'd been writing in fits and starts since like 2018, and um Around the same time, I applied to PhD programs again, and lo and behold, ended up at Northwestern, where I am now finishing the second year of my PhD. So done with my classes, and I'll start writing my dissertation next year. I'm here for like three more years if you want to come to Chicago and visit. And yes, as you said, my first novel, Foster, Foster Day, It Explores the Cosmos, uh, came out last month. Wow, that's like... It's funny because you started saying, like, I can't believe I'm 30. Like, how did you do all of that before you were 30? Like, you lived, oh, like, God. eight lifetimes. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 I didn't have a romantic life as a result. Um, no, I mean, I, I was always I was always so annoyingly ambitious. Um, I always, always was, right? Like, I, you know, I, I wanted to be a writer because it did bring me from a young age this sort of organic joy. But like the cruder truth is also that like I wanted to be a writer because like I was told at a young age that it was a thing that I was good at, right? Like so much of my self-esteem 
Um, and self-confidence was bound up in this image of myself as this talented writer. And I was like, okay, I have all of these accomplishments that I need to achieve, you know, in my twenties to sort of satisfy this vision of myself as this like precocious young writer. And yeah, like I, I, I checked off a lot of boxes on that list and then eventually realized that like, yeah, you know, I can check off all the boxes on that list and like, it's not going to, you know, it's not, you know, like I, superficial accomplishments are precisely that. So yeah, the, the short version is I was like annoyingly ambitious for like probably pathological reasons. And like, also I'm just kind of a rootless person by, by design. Like I I'm prone to move, moving from like place to place yeah. to place. So like, oh, I did journalism, got bored of that time to go, you know, be an academic. Oh, by the way, I want to write my novel. Right. So like, it's sort of like, I guess the answer to your question is a combination of like low self-esteem and ADHD, if that makes sense. Well, it's funny because I am very similar. I mean, like I'm literally moving from, I moved to Austin two and a half years ago and now I'm moving back in like five days, which is wild. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, it's like, I haven't really wrapped my head around it, but my mom like makes the same comments about me being like you, whenever like you're bored, you just like leave or run away and I'm like yeah but it's better than being bored like I don't know so maybe it's pathological or maybe it's just we like experiences and like like learning new things and not staying in like the monotony of a certain situation yeah I, th I think that's totally right I don't know if the same is true for you but like 97 percent of my friends from Hopkins and from Lawrenceville for that matter all ended up in New York oh, City yeah. and have since graduation and i have never lived in new york minus a three-month stretch during the pandemic when i was working as a live-in tutor for a new york city family which is a story for another day and you know so for the last how long has it been since i graduated eight years uh, you know i've had this like very mundane but steady fomo right mm -hmm. where i you know i'm in chicago um, I've been here for a couple of years. I have wonderful friends here, but adult, you know, there's adult friendship is different than the sort of friendships you build in college or in high school, right? Yeah. The sort of a person friend group is not a thing that comes to be when you're, you know, in your late twenties. And so, you know, I look at my friends in New York and I always think, wow, I would be, if not happier than at least significantly less lonely if I lived there, right? On any given night, I could send a text and like have dinner with someone, mm -hmm. right? And I, you know, and, and I, it's funny, the FOMO has actually gotten worse. And I, you know, I hate to use like banal terms like FOMO, but whatever, it describes my feelings perfectly. Like it's actually gotten worse as I've gotten older. I think in my early twenties, when I was you know living in Asia or whatever, I was like, okay, me being far away from everyone and not in the mix is like a necessary, necessary cost that I have to pay, you know, for the sake of my ambitions. But now it's like, you know what, like I I'm here. I've achieved the stuff I've wanted to achieve. I kind of just miss my pals, you know? So point being like, I think, yeah, we're similar, you know, like I had this weird allergy when I was younger to doing the things that everyone else did. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I took pride in the fact that I didn't want to work in finance, didn't want to just move to New York and get an apartment in Murray Hill. And like, in hindsight, that was mostly just conceited of me, but yeah, you know, so like, it's sort of a mixed bag, right? Like it's been tough. It's brought about a certain degree of loneliness i miss i miss my friends i envy the fact that they have each other but at the same time like i've had a variety of like really weird crazy experiences 
you know, as a young adult. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah, exactly. I, I, and you can, you also have those friendships that are like your most stable ones in all in the same place that you can just like time will pass, but nothing will change. Like the friendship won't wane. So, um, at least that's how like I feel. And that's why I feel like more comfortable returning to New York. Cause I'm like, well, it may have been two and a half years, but like realistically, like I know we're going to pick up where we left off. Yeah, precisely. And I'll, I'll also say this, like I'm from North Carolina, like I'm, I'm very much like a child of the provinces. And accordingly, I've always had like a very provincial romantic idea of New York City. And it's one that I know that would be like immediately shattered if I actually had to like, live there yeah. and pay rent you know, living on a PhD student stipend. So it's really lovely to be able to like go back to New York three or four times a year, very much as a tourist and like, you know, stay with my friends and hang out with my friends for a weekend without getting sick of each other, you know? Like, yeah. So I, it's, a, it's a balance, right? And I'm also like, I'm so, I've always been a grass is always greener person, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm uniquely good at like finding fault with my present situation and like, as much as I lament being far away from New York and being far away from my friends now, I know that if I lived there, I would have just as many grievances with my situation. And I'm probably coming across as someone who's both like very dour and also like really, really like proud of himself. I'm neither of those things. Uh, but anyway. Well, you should anyway. be proud of yourself. So going back, you mentioned earlier like that you always imagined being a specifically fiction writer and that you know, you thought the way to get there would be through like beginning and writing journalism and things like that. So I'm really curious to hear like, you know, what your thought, like, did you write a lot when you were little? Like, how did that dream come to be? Because I like, I think of my sister, for example, who's an amazing writer, like writes beautiful short stories. And she, she never like, that was never still a dream of her. So I'm curious to hear like how, you became passionate about writing and like how you knew that was your calling. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I've come to realize that like writers are always readers first. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't a reader. Like some of my earliest memories are of, you know, me being three years old and my mom taking my older sister and me to the library downtown um, and, you know, so my, my, I have three sisters. I'm the second oldest of four. My sister, Sophie was, is a year and a half, roughly older than I am. And like, I always like very much looked up to her and also envied her position as the eldest. So anytime she had something, I wanted it to, uh, <laughs> and accordingly when she learned to read at age five, I was like, oh, well, am I allowed to curse? Yeah. I was like, oh shit, I want to learn how to read too. Yeah, sorry, really, really lame use of a curse word. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like, you know, and, and I, I just really, really like books, right? And it's not that I like didn't like TV or video games. It helps that my parents were like, very very strict about my media consumption. Um, Not in like weird moralizing ways. They were just like, no, you don't get to watch TV for hours every day, right? Go yeah. read a book. So as a result, like, I always loved to read, and I was also a weirdly imaginative kid. Like, maybe unsurprisingly, you know, I was a kid who loved The Sims and SimCity. I actually still play SimCity to this day, and, like, I'm not going to tell you how recently it was that I last played Sims 3, but, like, it was far more recently than I'd like to admit, right? Like, I always, I just loved 
the idea of like world building mm-hmm. in my head, you know, populating those worlds with lives, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, I would say probably in like second or third grade, that curiosity and my general love of fiction coalesced in the sense that, oh, maybe I can just, you know, write my own stories, which I I did. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure the first completed story I ever wrote was like a piece of Boy Meets World fan fiction, which was like weirdly sexual <laughs> for something written by an eight-year-old. Um, but yeah, you know, and again, like 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 I was saying at the beginning, like writing has always been like the one thing that A has ever come naturally to me and B that I've earned praise for, mm-hmm. right? Like I was not good at sports. I was terrible at math and science. I was generally a scattered and inconsistent student when I was younger. But like writing was the thing where it was like, hey, Nash is really good at this and like you know i leaned into that and i always had this baseline of hubris i think where i told myself like okay i'm just good enough at this to where i can spend my life doing it and not completely waste my time in the attempt um you know, and again, like I'm very lucky to have had a number of very, very humbling life events happen to me, like in, as a young adult in particular, um, at, you know, then those sorts of things have tempered, tempered that kind of like blind confidence, right? Like, but like, I sort of always allowed myself to think like, okay, if I spend my time doing this, it's not going to be totally in vain. There are people who are going to want to read what I write, who are going to enjoy what I write. And you know, that we, I mean, we can talk about the, the specifics of Foster Dade in a bit, but this particular book was something that I had wanted to write since probably the first three months of my first year at Lawrenceville, the boarding school I went to. That's like exactly what I was curious about was because I, like, I think I reflect back on my time at St. Andrews, which is where I went to school, if I haven't mentioned that already in the podcast. Um, and I just think, and like telling, because I, you know, I'll meet people, especially in Austin, and they're like, "What's boarding school? Like, what? Like, you know, yeah. they think of either Hogwarts or just like a lot of drugs." Which, sure, yes, mm, precisely. And I'm like, honestly, St. Andrews was neither of those. It was like summer yeah. camp with a lot of rules, and yeah. but I mean, on one hand, or for there's like two parts to this. One is that I didn't even know at the time. I literally applied to. St. Andrews because one teacher said, oh, Zoe would like this school, probably because I was a really weird middle schooler, and they were like, she couldn't handle where did, where, did you, where, did, where did you grow up? I forget. In New Jersey. So I knew so much about Lawrenceville because oh, sure, I sure, knew like sure. four people that yeah. went there. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Sorry for interrupting, by the way. No, no, no. It, it's like, it adds good context because like, I knew about Lawrenceville. My best friend went to Hotchkiss. You know, like half of my middle school grade went to boarding schools. But no mm. one went to St. Andrews because – and then I think my teacher literally said it because I was, like, a really weird sixth grader. And they're like, I don't, sure. I don't think she could handle, like, Andover or Choate or, like, De- like Taft, God forbid. No. Um, and then, you know, they're like, she'd be good at St. Andrews. And then I spent my freshman year of high school abroad living in Greece. Oh, really? So, yeah, I, I moved to Athens with my family for this very, like, amazing, beautiful – 
year and then we moved back it was oh yeah it was kind of a fever dream um and then i was choosing between going to a local school where i already knew everyone in my town i I didn't really like my town or move to delaware and just like whatever and so that's what i end up doing Uh, but all this is to say so that's how i ended up at st andrews and i had no idea that they had this like amazing writing program specifically which wouldn't have made really sense because i'm the opposite i'm very much quantitative like what is it left side of my brain like i never know which side of the brain is left i think la- left is math but it, it seems kind of counterintuitive i don't it know sound, why. this sounds right i believe you sounds but right. anyway, sorry. Um, and so i didn't even realize that it was like so focused on writing and that you know dead poet society was filmed there and and the west, wing. The west mm-hmm. wing. and the west wing um yeah i think that might be it but it's beautiful school, beautiful yeah. campus. And then also just kind of as you alluded to, like boarding school was a weird experience. And like yeah. aside from uh, 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 the secret history or like, you know, Dead Poet Society, like there's not a lot of like it's a very unique experience. Just sure. the like life living with people when you're like 14, 15 and so, like, I'd always be like, this is just ridiculous. Some of these stories I tell, I'm like, I can't. <laughs> it's, they're, like, so funny. Like, this has to be written somewhere. Sure. And so I can see how you, you know, we're like, if I'm going to write about anything, I'm going to write about this experience at boarding school. Um, so I'm curious to, A, learn about, A, like, how you ended up at Lawrenceville or just boarding school in general. And, B, like, if. Because you said you start like started thinking about writing, you know, a book about if anything, it would be your experience there, and then like kind of how that evolved into Foster Dade. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, first of all, it's it's funny that you mentioned just how like utterly bizarre boarding school is, <laughs> especially in juxtaposition with the stories, the films, and pieces of literature we associate with boarding school. And there's a point. Uh, in the book where the narrator actually says this, right? Like the like the boarding school of like Dead Poets Society or a separate piece where like, you know, it's all male and everyone's in a blazer and tie and like reading ancient Greek, like could not be more removed from like boarding school of the the present or contemporary era right like mm-hmm. a, but like my conception of boarding school growing up was you know precisely the former right i mean i had a very very vague sense of it um but i ultimately had no idea what to expect so you asked how i ended up at lawrenceville um so i grew up again in wilmington north carolina um i was in public school until seventh grade and then my parents moved me to the local private school uh mostly because i had undiagnosed adhd and was like not doing my homework and also had hit puberty like six months earlier and was just a very very unhappy angry hormonal teenager so i went to this private school um seventh and ninth grade and you know, I, I was incredibly happy there. Uh, you know, I was at a wedding this past weekend for one of my oldest friends from North Carolina, and I'm still as close with all of my North Carolina friends as I was back then. Uh, but, you know, I was also like, a, a you know, a very sensitive teenager who was a little too clever by half. And like many sensitive teenagers who were a little too clever by half, I tended to think my world was too small for me. I felt suffocated by it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was, you know, political, right? Like, okay, I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina, 
um, surrounded by a bunch of like, you know, good old Southern boys who all drive pickup trucks. And, you know, I began to think, okay, like, what is the rest of the world like? And, you know, my dad had gone to boarding school in Virginia. So it was always a thing in my house that was floated as like a possibility if any of us wanted to consider it. Um, so spring of ninth grade, and again, I, 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 it's not like I was unhappy. Um, so I don't really know what motivated this, but I was just like, hmm, maybe I'll apply to boarding school. So, um, I applied to two schools. One was my dad's alma mater, um, Virginia Episcopal School, and the other was Lawrenceville. Um, I applied to Lawrenceville because it was a school my dad had always mentioned as like a really good school. We had lived in New Jersey um, when I was born. My parents were working in the city and, you know, they were, uh, you know, commuting in. So he knew Lawrenceville and always said, hey, this is a really, really good school. And, you know, because I sort of had it in my mind for that reason, I applied and I got in and I was like, screw it. Like, I might as well go. And that's how I ended up there. And I was there for three years and it remains probably the most, emotionally and psychologically intense period of my life for worse and for better Mm -hmm. um and you know admittedly you could say that that's true of adolescence for everyone um which sort of brings me to the question of okay where did foster come from right so like for as long as i can remember i've been infatuated by stories about adolescence like i remember reading the perks of being a wallflower for the first time in sixth or seventh grade and being absolutely bowled over um because like i don't know like the best of those books the best of those books about teenagers and about the experience of being an adolescent they take the like intense emotional intensity of it and like finally calibrate it into these like romances that are always so much more poignant and lyrical than the experience of being a teenager actually is for the reader but like they give the reader something to aspire to right these very sort of like cinematic first kisses and like all night conversations with your best friend and i've just always been drawn to like the earnestness and sentimentality of those sorts of teenage stories and I think I'd always known that I wanted to write one, largely because, like, my realization that I wanted to eventually write a novel came about when I was a teenager, and that was the experience I was in. It was the experience I wanted to write about. And then I went to Lawrenceville, and, you know, in addition to having this experience of adolescence that I wanted to write about, I also had this very, very, very particular cultural experience being thrust into this strange world in, you know, central New Jersey. And I remember thinking, you know, I want to write about this largely because there aren't that many books that center on boarding school after World War II. You know, Prep is an obvious example, and that's a book I love. But also I remember thinking, you know, if I I don't write about this, if I don't write about the way it feels to be here, to be 17 years old, et cetera, et cetera, I'm eventually going to forget it. And that was ultimately true, right? Like, I don't know if you remember how intensely you feel things when you're 15, 16, 17, but like, I don't feel anything that intensely now. And so Foster, and I'll stop rambling in a second, but Foster really began as an attempt to memorialize this very particular experience I had and also this very particular world in which that experience took shape. Um, And then over like the subsequent, you know, five to 10 years is when it actually became a story that was its own fictional plot rather than like a, you know, autobiographical narrative. 
but yeah so you know it's it, it was a it was a it's been a long winding road as it were that's that makes so much sense and it's like it's I mean it, exactly as you said like reading your book and reading books similar that just in capture that like those perfect life moments that even I mean even now it's been almost 10 years since I graduated but I can just remember specific moments on like we called it the front lawn or mm-hmm. like you know the raves we would have without alcohol that just yeah. would never do again but like in the moment we're just so perfect and so fun and like I don't know it, it's like you know how there's a lot of um talk in the mental health world about like finding your inner child and like sometimes sure. it goes too far on tiktok and i'm just like this is ridiculous sure it is kind of like thinking back to that i'm like that is pure bliss that is that was like my, my inner child at its happiest obviously other times at its saddest but i think it's it's just so beautiful and i was so curious in reading your book if i guess foster date specifically was inspired by a certain person or was it more of like an amalgamation of the people you came into, you know, you came across while at Lawrenceville or even like more meta, was he a more just like representation of the boarding school experience as a whole? Sure. I mean, so a lot of people read the book and assume that Foster is like a thinly veiled version of myself to which I respond like very, very emphatically that like, that's absolutely not the case. Like Foster Mm -hmm. is, a, so much cooler and B, so much quieter than I could ever be. Um, but he was a very specific archetype of a person I encountered at Lawrenceville, but elsewhere. Someone who is clearly profoundly sensitive and, you know, takes in the world with these wide eyes, but sort of internalizes it, right? Like what always fascinated me about Foster as a character was the way he turns inward. Whereas I was the exact opposite, right? Like if I have a feeling, I post eight Instagram stories about it. Um, So, you know, he was also inflected by, you know, so the narrator, right? If if I am in the book in any form, uh, it's in the form of the narrator. That's um, what I was guessing. Yeah. So the na- the narrator, just to contextualize this for the the listener at home, um, so Foster Date Explores the Cosmos is an account of a scandal that transpired at a boarding school in New Jersey, um, in like the end of the first decade of the twenty first century, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. The narrator himself arrived at Kennedy, that's the school, as a new sophomore um, in the immediate aftermath of the scandal and begins hearing stories of what had happened, um, you know, late at night when everyone's hanging out in each other's rooms. And, you know, Foster is the boy at the center of that scandal. So he is the center of the narrator's attempt a decade later to reconstruct the story almost journalistically. And I have so many memories of being that age, you know, being new to Lawrenceville and just so unbelievably impressionable and hearing stories about, you know, similar points of intrigue, someone who had been expelled or someone who had, you know, been forced to leave the school under, you know, any of a variety of circumstances and being so haunted by these stories, right? Because like, you know, they were absent from the world I was experiencing, but their presence was still there in the form of these mythologies that made the world I had entered feel so much richer and more mysterious. Um, But, you know, I mean, Foster, that said, even though I, when I picture Foster, I don't picture myself. 
there are aspects of Foster's experience at Kennedy that are very much mine. I mean, you talk about um, you know, the the moments of bliss that you experience at St. Andrews. And I certainly had those at Lawrenceville, but they came later and they were prefaced by moments or rather long stretches of equally intense, if not more intense, loneliness and solitude, right? So I arrived as a new sophomore um, mm -hmm. and I don't know how it was at St. Andrews, but it was tough being a new sophomore at Lawrenceville, um, you know, so you, you mentioned Hogwarts. If Lawrenceville is comparable to Hogwarts in any way, it's in the form of a house system, right? So your sophomore and junior year, you live in a small dormitory of like 30 people. Each dormitory has its own traditions and colors and flag and culture and identity. And I just so happened to end up in a house with a lot of people who wouldn't end up being close friends of mine. So I was incredibly isolated and, you know, even though I, I, you know, built friendships, I remember just being so unbelievably baffled by this world, by this culture, and like constantly feeling like I wasn't cool enough or smart enough or savvy enough or connected enough. And only years later, you know, in conversations with my Lawrenceville friends who remain like my closest friends, did I come to realize that everyone had felt that way? We were all just too afraid to admit it because it seemed like everyone else had it figured out and to admit mm -hmm. that lonely would be like to admit defeat. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the experience I really wanted to transcribe in the book, that initial sense of solitude and isolation and alienation. And then once it finally fixes itself and you have these connections and these relationships, the way that in contrast, that sense of belonging feels almost like spiritual, almost drug-like juxtaposed with the loneliness you're coming from. That, like, I relate to that so much. We didn't have house systems, but for me, like, because I was also a new sophomore and, and we, there were like six of us, like six new sophomores. And on, How big I'd was also, the class at St. Andrews? Like 65, 70, yeah, like yeah, very yeah. small. Under, yeah. The whole school was under 300 people. Yeah, wow. And, um... It's, it was ironic because I had come from my freshman year where I went to this international school in Greece where everyone was had been new at one point like because, you know, people's parents had moved for like two years sure. or it was an army brat or all those things. It's where it was like super friendly, like every day felt like an orientation week, like you were sure. always meeting new people. And then I thought the same would happen in boarding school, but kind of as you mentioned like just along with these like mythologies about people who had been like let go or not asked back or mm. you know put on separation instead of but not suspension or all of the different things they came up with sure there were also it's like these people had spent nine months living together they were yeah. family it right. wasn't an and when you're and when you're and when you're 14 15 nine months feels like five years yeah and yeah. you're spending 24 7 with these people and so yeah. it really felt like i was like intruding on a family because oh. everything all thing was like an inside joke oh that, that it, you didn't in, know intrusion is the perfect way to describe it i felt like i was imposing yeah right totally that's yeah so so well said and it's like that as you said like it really that sophomore year was pretty hard especially reflecting back and then once you, yeah, once you've found those connections, it's like those moments in the book where Foster Date is like, you know, in New York with his friends, just absolutely having the best time of his life, feeling like on top of the world. 
And so I totally see what you mean about like the contrast. And I think it makes it that as you like, it makes it those magical moments that much more potent. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Right. And you know, I mean, it's, it's funny. Um, I, how should I phrase this? I was very worried about what the school, what Lawrenceville would think of my book, right? Because there are a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, the book masquerades as a piece of nonfiction, right? The narrator mm -hmm. introduces himself as a sort of like freelance journalist who's reporting out this scandal, right? And 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 like the 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 narrative of the book is so enriched by news articles and like primary sources and email excerpts it's meant if it's you know maybe maybe it doesn't succeed at this but i wanted the reader to think wow this is something that actually transpired right and mm -hmm. like that narrative conceit aside it's pretty evident to most people that kennedy the school in the book is a thinly veiled fictionalization of Lawrenceville, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's because when I began writing the book, um, so the story, you know, fostered as a story, as like a coherent plot began in a short story I wrote for a writing seminars fiction workshop my sophomore year at Hopkins. And at the time, my goal was still very much to like transcribe my experience of Lawrenceville rather than, you know, tell telling a more fictionalized story so that's how that's how the world of the book began and even as i you know as i wrote the the story became increasingly fictional the characters at least the primary characters were all utterly fictional but kennedy remained at least on a superficial aesthetic level lawrenceville and my worry was that lawrenceville as an institution would read the book and see the book as an indictment of this very real place right yeah. You know, they would, you know, I worried that they would worry that folks would read about the scandal in the book and think, oh, well, if Kennedy is meant to be Lawrenceville, this scandal must be inspired by things that actually happened there. Um, or like even less politically, you know, Foster's loneliness in the book is in many respects a symptom of the way that culture works. And I worried they would think that I was presenting this place as like a very, very unwelcoming environment. And that was like never, I mean, I think, I think the fact that I was so freaked out about somehow upsetting my high school, I think more than anything is a testament to how much I care about my high yeah, school. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I mean, one of the things I've come to realize and like, you know, I mean, I, I there's a part of me, I think that wrote the book, um, you know, part of me is always going to be the very, very insecure 15-year-old new sophomore who desperately wants everyone to think I'm cool. And there's like a weird messed up part of me that wrote the book for other Lawrenceville people, hoping that they would read it and be like, oh, Nash Jenkins really got it right. So like, it's really wonderful to hear from, you know, my Lawrenceville classmates, oh, you captured the school perfectly. But the most meaningful compliments are those coming from folks who either demographically or culturally or generationally you know, spent their adolescence under much different circumstances. And like the most meaningful compliments are those coming from those people who say, wow, you really captured the experience of being a teenager. And like what I think that says is, you know, you could read the book and see Foster's emotional experiences as a circumstance of this world he's in. But really, I think those feelings of estrangement and alienation and isolation are really just true of being a teenager right and yeah, i don't know universal if, yeah exactly and i don't know maybe i don't know if this was your experience at st andrews but like my sense of boarding school is that 
you know, fundamentally on a emotional and cultural level, it is, you know, a world of teenagers and teenagers are teenagers are teenagers, but in the nature, of, it's in the nature of the boarding school ecosystem, which is closed off and insular, literally your whole world. It's in the nature of how that ecosystem works to take those emotional intensities and ramp them up 20 fold, right? It's like being a teenager on steroids, you know, mm-hmm. in sense. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I, it's interesting that you, you know, you mentioned being worried about how Lawrenceville would react to the book and like you know what they'd think. And it's funny because I like when I started my podcast back in, I think this was like January of twenty twenty. I recorded with a a girl who was a year younger than me at St Andrews, and we were talking about, um, we were we were actually talking about like her, our histories with eating disorders but I wanted to bring into that like you know how boarding school contributed to that because it definitely did but at the time I was so worried about like well what if not even just the institution like I do have those diehard St. Andrews friends however as much as as much as I care about the school they care about it 20 times more that maybe their parent worked there or like you know they're a triple alum like oh yeah yeah their whole family yeah no totally totally so I I I cut that part out of the episode because I was so worried but I don't think it's like fair not to bring up my own thoughts of like as much as boarding school was the best experience of my life I it there were problems like Totally. And I now know, you know, especially because I think back, I'm like, wow, my teachers are, were literally 23, but for some reason I thought they were like, you know, in their forties yeah. yeah. or something. Yeah. But you know, that's a lot. They put a lot of responsibility on the teachers and administration of like, these are 14 year old kids. And as much as they think that they're, you know, adults right now because they're living without their parents, they're not living without their parents. If anything, those kids have more, you know, rules regulations and like you know curfews and like the the ridiculous things that we had to do because to make up for the fact that you know parents were paying a lot of money for these educations and they wanted to make sure their kids weren't getting into trouble so I understand that but I think that there was almost like a I almost feel like those rules and regulations and like backfired in a sense that a lot of people I know, a lot of my friends and um, like acquaintances, I feel like they weren't prepared to enter the real world, so to speak. Like from going that such a bubble, I mean, especially, I don't know how Lawrenceville was, but like with St. Andrews, A, we were in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like we were in Middletown, Delaware. Closest thing around us was a Wawa. And so we didn't, do anything and like and they were a you know zero or i guess one strike policy like if you brought drugs or if you drank on campus immediately expelled sure and so we were very contained and then i you know had lived in greece the year prior where there's no rules yeah and so i entered and i was like okay i already you know i've i've had my first beer i'm good like i knew i had some boundaries around like what i knew i would and wouldn't ever do sure and then going into college and seeing just some of my friends like really go off the deep end and just the the residual effects yeah have been really hard to swallow whether it's something that I 
personally still have to deal with as a result of like that very unique experience or just seeing how many of my friends have a lot of like very, very bad mental health issues that ultimately I think have at least some ties to that experience. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I think, I think you're absolutely right. And again, I feel, I feel so pretentious, like citing my own book, but like (laughs) there's a moment in the book where the narrator, um, he is like, referencing um a consensus among certain child psychologists which I, this is something i utterly fictionalized but i think the point is valid he's you know he's basically saying that like a certain set of college uh, child psychologists are like vehemently opposed to boarding school as a concept because 14 years old is fundamentally too young to be sort of thrust out into the world right Mm -hmm. and 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 like i you know i think there's there's some truth to that right because like yes it's not like i left home forever at 14 i was still going home you know for four months of the year on breaks i was still dependent on my parents in so many ways but there was this sense that i was i had sort of been pushed out of the nest and I find myself in this environment where the rules and not just the 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 disciplinary rules at school, but this sort of cultural politics felt so foreign and inconsistent and just bewildering. And it really threw me for a loop. Right. And I was the sort of kid. I mean, yes, I was very outspoken and annoying, but when I felt actual pain, I very much turned inward. And again, as we were saying a few minutes ago, right, like when when you're unhappy at an environment like that, you know, the first instinct is, oh, there's something wrong with me because everyone else seems to just have it figured out. Everyone Mm -hmm. else to like just be thriving here. So there are a lot of ways in which I was unhappy, especially in my first year, year and a half at Lawrenceville, where my unhappiness was compounded by a sense of shame over my unhappiness and this general sense that was, I guess, related that I, I, there was no recourse to it, right? I was sort of left to find my way. I couldn't admit to anyone around me that I was struggling and you know, conversely, you know, you were mentioning a few minutes ago there are there 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 is like a very specific demographic of kid who is just like so so gung ho about their boarding school, right? And in many cases, those were the kids who, while at Lawrenceville, I think this is true of any boarding school, operated with like the unspoken assumption that the world existed for them, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Maybe they were the fourth generation in their family to go, or maybe they were a lacrosse player and sort of sat atop the social taxonomy by default. But there was this sort of profound sense of entitlement I experienced in these people, right? They were the ones who drank and smoked weed on campus because the rules seemed they they seemed to believe the rules didn't apply to them. Whereas I was like too big of a chicken to even like consider drinking on campus. Um, and you know, though, you know, a, a lot of those kids like ever since then have seemed kind of stunted. They seemed maladjusted to the, you know, the actual world beyond high school. And again, I think that's, that's, you know, that that's true anywhere, right? It's sort of mm-hmm. a cliche the the, you know, the high school athlete who is stuck in his, his golden years, who like will never be as cool as he was in high school. 
But I remember just seeing these people and like, you know, I'll be honest, some of them weren't very nice. And when I see ways in which they haven't, you know, continued to thrive post high school, there's a certain element of like schadenfreude for me. I'm like, well, look at me. I was unhappy there, but look at all these things I've accomplished now. But also like, I do think it says something about the particular high school, the boarding school environment, right? Like, it's, you know, it, their belief that, you know, Lawrenceville was this utopian kingdom designed for them. Like, yeah, maybe there was some entitlement there, but it's also a sense that's sort of encouraged by the school. You know, you're there mm-hmm. and it is this own unique world with its own unique heritage and traditions. And you're having this amazing rarefied experience. And honestly, if I resented them in any way, it's because I was jealous of them. I was jealous of the fact that it seemed to come so naturally to them, this sense of belonging, you know, whereas for me, I oftentimes felt like I was faking it. Yeah. And I think even going off of that, like thinking about Foster Dade's experience specifically, like, and I'm sure, you know, sometimes I think like the close to equivalent version of boarding school is like one of the schools in New York City that's super pretentious because like New York City is basically like if you're navigating that as a 14 year old, like you're basically being an adult. Sure. Um, But especially with, you know, uh, Kennedy being so close to New York City that it's like, this overcompensation of like, well, we were so, you know, there's like, you're so bubbled up in the actual boarding school environment that when you're in the quote real world as a 17 year old, it's like amplifies everything. Like you're going to do all the drugs. You're going to do drink as much as you can because it's almost like glorified because it's something that you can't do on a weekend basis. And you see Foster, for example, getting wrapped into that, whereas maybe he didn't enter the school thinking of himself in that way or having those desires, which I think is a very common experience. Completely, completely. I mean, you know, I I started drinking in high school, but it was solely when I was home for like Thanksgiving or Christmas with my North Carolina friends, Um, you know, and by when I got to college, you know, this, you know, three months after graduating from Lawrenceville, drinking, for example, still had this sort of like rarefied mystique. And I went hard and like, Yes, I, you know, I, so I, I'm, I quit drinking seven and a half years ago and like there's alcoholism on both sides of my family. Um, you know, I think I was always sort of hardwired to end up having a problematic relationship with alcohol and drugs. But at the same time that like that initial draw to it was this sense that like I had been repressed for, mm-hmm. like, you know, for like three years or whatever. And like in hindsight, you know, I think I sort of, even though despite my frustrations and moments of loneliness, I sort of fetishized, you know, boarding school. I fetishized Lawrenceville, which was why I was so desperate to follow all of the rules. And I think in hindsight, I probably could have gotten away with drinking on campus um, and no one would have ever known. Um, But no, I I think you're absolutely right. And something I was just thinking about, um, you know, uh, sort of following your comment a few minutes ago about the way boarding school sort of leaves us a bit maladapted to the real world. And I don't know if this is um, a consequence of the way boarding school culture works or if it's a consequence of the generation in which we came of age. But like when I was at my lowest at Lawrenceville, I had precisely no language for understanding my own mental health, right? Like 
it was only years later that I recognized that my sophomore year at Lawrenceville, I was having panic attacks twice a month, right? That I was miserably depressed and, you know, by association, deeply anxious. And, you know, not only did I feel a certain shame in the fact that I wasn't as happy as anyone else, I didn't even have a sense of depression and anxiety as concepts, right? And again, I, I think, I, I don't know if that's unique to boarding school. I think that a lot of that has to do with just our generation, right? You look at how drastically things have changed in the last decade in the conversation around mental health, around sexuality, and around gender, and like, yeah, you could say that, like, the culture is guilty of, like, an overcorrection in some ways, language policing and whatever. But I'm also incredibly envious of the kids who are 15 now, right? Mm-hmm. If they're depressed, they're able to be depressed. And, you know, you're able they, they have the language to talk about it. And again, like, I, I, I you know, and be, again, because even if, I, and honestly, if I had found out, like, okay, I'm diagnosed with depression at 16, you know, again, the way the boarding school environment works where it's like this fishbowl, you know, I constantly felt like I was being watched, right? I couldn't walk across campus without thinking that, oh, people are looking at me out the windows. I think I probably would have been too ashamed to acknowledge that diagnosis with my with others, but even with myself. So I guess that lack of preparation for the very real sort of mental health realities that awaited me as an adult, a lot. I think that's partially generational, but partially maybe an aspect of the boarding school experience. That's so, so spot on. And I think like similarly, I, I, I'm fortunate that I don't think I was ever, I think I, I think my depression waited to kick in until college, Mm -hmm. but, and I I will say like, I don't, I don't have the experience of going to like a public school or just a non, I, you know, I went to a high school in Greece that definitely didn't address mental health. And then St. Andrews, which I can't blame for not addressing it because I think just every school system needs to have better mental health like classes and it needs to be incorporated into, you know, sex ed, all of that. Sure. That's a whole, again, a different conversation. But I do think like, okay, if I'm, you know, or if my parents are paying this much money for this education and like these schools want to be known as like the best schools in the country, they need to have like their mental health shit together. And as you said, with the fishbowl comment, not, I, I don't, I remember like there would be these weird things like, and it so wasn't, not only was it not talked about, it was like whenever someone would leave, especially cause you know, I was in the women dorms mm. and, and eating disorders were very prevalent on boarding school because they, you know, you have ice cream Sundays twice a week in the whatever. Sure. And then, you know, and like ice cream and everyone's making you cookies for it. it there's a lot of issues. Yeah. Um, and so th- there would be situations where girls would just suddenly leave for like two weeks mm. and or like two months. They would. And the answer was like, oh, they're on. I don't even it wasn't even a leave of absence. I don't even remember the word. But there was this like weird phrase where you just knew. Sure. And it was like sure. the talk of the dorms because sure. what the fuck else are you going to talk about? It's boarding school. Of it's course. Like, totally. Blah, yeah. Blah, like, the, the weather in Middletown, Delaware. Right. It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like the more hush hush they made it, the more stigmatized it was. And I remember like, and also then you'd have, I don't know if Lawrenceville was like this, but like, you know, teachers in Middletown, Delaware, what do they have to talk about? Sure. They, us. So then it would be like the coaches whispering to the teachers about this kid who had an eating disorder or, or this couple that they walked in on having sex. And it's like, at what point is it like the, 
this is this is not healthy. Like this is not good. We need to talk about something else or at least just address the elephant of the room of like we've been noticing that, you know, there's been more cases of people coming to the counseling office to talk about anxiety. Like let's have a meeting about what anxiety is or like, you know, how to talk about it or how to bring up these thoughts to your dorm parent or your RL and like things like that because it was like so like they I don't know there was just so much shame around anything that made you different totally totally and it's funny you you know you mentioned people leaving temporarily or permanently right because like you you know I don't know this was true at St. Andrews but at Lawrenceville in this sort of like collective imagination the only thing more shameful than being expelled was leaving of your own volition, right? Mm-hmm. When someone, like there are a couple of cases where someone would be at Lawrenceville for a year or maybe two years, and then they would leave and they would go home. And they were always sort of like, this was unspoken, but they were, it was, it was stigmatized in a way because it's like, they couldn't cut it. They, 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 they weren't cut out for this. Right. And, you know, like I was, intensely unhappy my first year there but not for a second would i have ever considered calling it a day and going back to north carolina because i was much too proud and the shame of what would have felt like admitting my defeat was just too crushing right and in hindsight i actually have a tremendous amount of respect for the kids who were who did leave right because, you know, they were just as privy to these cultural expectations as I was. And it takes a, a tremendous amount of courage, especially at that age, to be able to say, you know what, I'm not happy here and I need mm-hmm. to be elsewhere. But, you know, it's funny. I mean, you mentioned uh, academic rigor a few moments ago, and this was just one more variable in the like uh, mental health and self-esteem formula. I, I don't know if this was your experience at St. Andrews, but Lawrenceville was legendarily academically rigorous. So Lawrenceville began as a sort of preparatory school for Princeton. And historically, you know, Exeter was the Harvard of boarding schools, Andover was the Yale, and Lawrenceville was the Princeton. It was those three schools who created the AP program in the 50s. You know, of my graduating class of 220, I think something like 33 went to Princeton. And that, that sense of academic expectation was particularly for me, someone who, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, always had his self-esteem so bound up in this sense of him as a, you know, being a smart person, that was just like devastating for me, right? Like I really, really, really wanted to go to Yale. And in hindsight, I didn't have a shot in hell getting into Yale because I had like B's and B pluses in math and science. But I remember when I didn't get into Yale or Columbia or Dartmouth, it felt like such a referendum on my worth. And I have a vivid memory of a a guy whom I love dearly. He he was a wonderful person, but he was just like really freaking smart and really, really ambitious. And he went to Harvard. And when he found out that I was only going to Johns Hopkins, he came up and gave me a hug to console me. Like, which which is just like a perfect illustration of how, like, how bizarre that universe is, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like, 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 like a, not a real place, life. No, exactly. A place where like fifteen percent of your graduating class goes to Princeton is not real life, right? And like, there were people, you know, not everyone was 
you know, there were people who were immune to this sense of academic pressure, right? Who knew where they stood and knew where they had a shot of getting in and didn't feel like they had failed as a human if they didn't get into a top 15 school. And like, I'll say this, like, I'm embarrassed to admit this. I mean, you, we probably, you probably know this every year over the last, I don't know, eight to 10 years, Hopkins has gradually climbed in the U.S. News Report ranking. Like it was like 14 when I was like seven now, seven, right? And I hate to say it. I fucking love that, right? (laughs) Because there's always going to be a part of me that needs that validation. And again, I think I would have been insecure about it no matter what, just because as I said, like my self-worth was always bound up in the world's perception of me as like a smart boy. But Lawrenceville absolutely incubated that and again it's not lawrenceville's fault right it's going to be the reality anywhere where like kids are really really smart and driven but that was such a component of it for me you know it was like it was this sense that like i had to live up to these like objectively implausible expectations it is implausible to expect 15 percent of the people you know to go to princeton right and and, you know and and again like i've learned to you know I, i i one of the like I think one of the problems with like our generation and our culture is like we're, we as a culture are very bad at, you know holding two conflicting ideas in our head at the same time things have to be either black or white good or bad mm-hmm. I'm able to look back on my time at Lawrenceville and be like you know there was a lot of stuff some of which concerned the institution some of which concerned me some of which was a fusion of the two that were unhealthy and not great that I would have you know probably preferred not to experience but these were also emotionally the most meaningful years of my life, right? Yeah, like, exactly. You know, that's, that's why I'm really wary of anyone who reads Foster as like a referendum on boarding school as a good or bad place, right? Like it's a complicated place. The world is a yeah. complicated place, you know? A hundred percent. And no, I'm like, it's so it's so funny you mentioned like just that experience because – it, yeah, as you mentioned, like any any school you go to that's like very academically driven or if even if you're just an academically driven person and you're at a like a public school like most people in, you know, the world that I was talking to my one of my college roommates the other day. We were talking about like Ivy Day and mm. just how ridiculous that is. Yeah. And I was like, Courtney, imagine that. But you all are in the same common room when you check that email. Yeah, like the worst. it's the fact that, you know, if I were at a regular school and I opened all those emails or I saw the email that I didn't get into Duke for early decision, like I would have just did you, did you apply to Duke? Did you apply to I Duke? Applied to, yeah. Oh, I applied to Duke E D along with six other boys and the all boys got in and I got deferred. You are right. I have many critiques of Hopkins, but I will say you are so fortunate to have not gone to Duke. I don't think I would have lasted a day. I, I, I'm biased. I'm biased because I'm from a very, very big UNC family, but also my oh, yeah. my high school girlfriend went to Duke and um, we remained like fitfully intact as a couple for a year or so after graduation. And I would visit her and I was like, wow, what like a uniquely high concentration of terrible people. Um but anyway, sorry, sorry, I, I interrupted you. I'm, I'm happy you didn't go to Duke. But what were you? No, yeah. it's, no but it's crazy. But it's it's crazy. Yeah. Like yeah. I remember crying in the Starbucks, like when I got my email. My parents visited, like just all the most. Literally, I feel like it's like the, everything out of my mouth. This interview has been just like the most privileged thing I've ever said in my life. But it is just ridiculous reflecting back on this, especially like. I put myself into all this, all, every single situa- situation sure, that is sure. mentioned by virtue of going to this school. But yeah, like seeing six guys who I all knew very well because there were only, you know, 60 people in my class. That's a 10th sure. of my grade. 
sure. getting into the school that was like my quote unquote dream school at the time. Sure. sure. And like not that sucked. And in the moment felt like the worst thing that could ever happen. But and yeah. And then, you know, posting it on Facebook and like all those. But yeah, Yale Yale 2015 exclamation point, exclamation (laughs) point. Um, But no, I I mean, I do want to respond to something you you just said about, um, you know, like the the privilege of it all. Yeah. And like something that I had to sort of accept and indeed embrace while writing Foster was that like just because an experience has the residue of privilege doesn't make the pain any less valid, right? Like I really, I really struggled with this. So, you know, I, again, I started, you know, the the idea for Foster as a story began with the short story I wrote in 2013. I didn't start writing it in earnest until 2018 because of a lot of creative indecision, but one of like the you know of all of the things that made me unsure of the direction in which I wanted to take the book the biggest sense was that I'm going to be ridiculed for writing a deeply emotional book about a bunch of you know rich privileged kids. rich white kids right and I that was a dilemma I grappled with creatively I was like oh like should I make foster a poor blue collar kid from Pittsburgh rather than a preppy tennis player from Baltimore, because on paper, Foster is no different from, you know, the Jack Albrights and Mason Pretlows of that world. Those are characters in the book. The listener who isn't familiar should go read the book and familiarize themselves, you know, but like at the end of the day, like the same is true of me, right? Like I went to private school in North Carolina, right? Like I, I, someone could easily look at the sort of two-dimensional biographical sketch of Nash Jenkins and say his privilege is you know, his his suffering is ultimately, like, negated or, or, like, muted by his privilege. But, like, at the end of the day, the pain I felt was the pain I felt, right? Like, and, like, I, you know, I wrote the book that way because that was just, like, my truth. So, like, yeah, there are, you know, like, there are aspects of our experience that are absolutely inflected by, like, the privileged circumstances in which they happened. But, like, I, it, it doesn't make it less real. You know. Yeah. And yeah. I and I think by virtue of writing about, you know, a character like a character who on the surface has that privilege and like you could make assumptions about, but mm. then just showing the layers of like his the inner demons and these thoughts is going through his mind and like his new friendships, new love interests, like all of those things, it just shows like that's a universal experience regardless of what your background is and like sure. where you grow up, where you come from, et cetera. Sure. Absolutely. 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 Right. And you know, like, again, like some, of, uh, like I said, some of the most meaningful compliments I've gotten from folks who've read the book are from people whose own experience of adolescence was so on the surface of things, so drastically different from the world of the book. Right. Mm-hmm. Who you know, didn't grow up affluent or going to private schools. And, you know, like, Again, I think there are universal emotional truths of being that age. Everyone goes through the same shit. Again, to be a teenager is to be a teenager is to be a teenager. And, you know, my hope is that the book captures that, you know, however imperfectly. So kind of going off, I mean, we've just talked, we've talked a lot about like your own mental health experience when you were a sophomore and, and as well as fosters. Obviously this is a, 
podcast about mental health and sure. a lot of questions I ask, especially when I when I speak with men is, you know, how like what advice would you give to someone specifically a man who's struggling with his mental health and to kind of make it more specific, like what advice would you give to a young Nash or, a you know, foster Dade in some of your his darkest moments? That's that's such a fabulous question, and you know the fact that you you you're, you're bringing gender into it is so so important because like one of the things I didn't say earlier when I was talking about the various dynamics that culminated in my feeling of alienation while at Lawrenceville, so much of them were bound up in ideas of masculinity, right? Like I wasn't an athlete. I was not, you know, an archetypal lacrosse bro. I, you know, was fitfully interrogating my own sexuality and all of these things, you know, like my, my, my maleness was like inextricable from all of these things. More importantly, my maleness, I think, is the reason I was so afraid of actually confronting these things head on, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't want to be like, oh, men have it the worst. I would never say that. But like, you know, to be a guy is to face this tacit expectation that like you don't suffer, right? Like, and maybe that's changed, right? Maybe 15-year-olds in 2023 are hearing this and, you know, this is completely foreign to them. But, like, for me, growing up when I did, um, you know, I know a lot of guys, and I was once among them, who saw, like, acknowledging one's weaknesses, one's mental health struggles as an indictment of one's character, of one's strength, of one's masculinity. And, I, you know, my counsel to 15-year-old Nash or 15-year-old Foster Dade or 15-year-old, you know, Joe Smith, who's sitting in his dorm at Lawrence, well, that's not a real person. I made up that name. Is that like, I mean, a couple things. One, this is very superficial, but very true. Where you go to college does not fucking matter. I mean, yes, it matters in that it will shape the, the course of your life, but your life is not going to be materially better because you went to Yale and not Hopkins or UNC. But that's, I mean, I'm being glib there. I mean, really what I would say is like everyone around you is feeling some variation on the same thing. Maybe not all the time, Maybe not in the same context, maybe about different things, but like just know that like you don't have to feel the way you're feeling, right? It's not an admission of weakness or defeat if you look at yourself in the mirror and say, hey, I need to take care of myself, right? So like eventually it was my sophomore year of college when I finally ended up being, you know, prescribed SSRIs for the first time. And I've been on medication ever since then. And, you know, I function in the world because I, you know, I'm on medication, right? Like I, and, and like, you know, for a, it, it took me years to admit that to my friends, my guy friends in particular, right? I was either like, okay, I can like, lean into it and you know 
play up the whole like kooky eccentric crazy writer thing oh i'm on i'm on psych meds haha or i can you know hide it as a thing of shame and you know i i really regret that right like you know because again as you grow up my mom has a saying right like so my dad you know um you know six years ago was in a surfing accident that left him you know paralyzed from like the 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 rib cage down and you know there were times when I really felt sorry for me and for our family and you think oh we have it so bad but my mom says and I think this is so true is everyone has their shit right everyone every person or every family has something that they are dealing with or working through or living with and I wish I had known that then, right? I wish I had known that everyone has a tragedy or a trauma or a pain. And, and, you know, I would just say, like, it's okay. You know, talk about it. You know, get help because life is so much better when you take care of yourself. I love that. And I think, you know, it. it you mentioned before, like, you don't know if, like, maybe if to 15-year-olds now it sounds foreign, and that is one thing I like, I really hope it does sound foreign. Like okay. I really hope a teenager right now who's at St. Andrews or who's at Lawrenceville or is just anywhere is like listening and thinking, oh, but I talk to my roommate about, you know, my mental health stuff all the time. Sure. Like sure. because, And I truly do think that that is possible just because of like, I don't know, Gen Z's openness with mental health and and the conversation that COVID has opened up, I really do think that things have changed and kind of to echo what you said, like it is so okay to ask for help. And the whole purpose of this podcast was to give voices to the people to say like, I'm going through this. Like, and so that someone listening can be like, Oh shit, they are like, yeah. wait, I thought I was the only person dealing with X, Y, or Z. Sure. 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 I want to, I was going to say, right. Like, in, you know, if if things have changed, if our conversation is foreign to the 15 year old today, it's thanks to things like what you're doing. Right. Like it takes a tremendous amount of courage to do what you're doing. Right. Because like, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, your inspiration for this podcast was predicated on your own experiences. Right. You're not talking mm -hmm. about health as a sociologist looking at things from the sidelines. Right. Like and that like requires a tremendous amount of courage. So, like, I think, you know, like. If 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 this conversation is foreign, like you should take credit for that, right? And maybe someone will read my book and like, you know, it'll help them in some way, but not in the way that what you do will. Um, but um, yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, like I I I hope it is foreign to them. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you saying that, but I I don't think your book is. I think your book provides that same amount of solace as like what I hope to do with my podcast and. I literally actually was thinking this reminded me like I considered reaching out to uh, teachers at St. Andrews and being like, I want like this. I want Foster Dade to be like a required reading for like juniors or something. OK, you will. You now that you mentioned it, I'm going to make you do that. You have. I really want to. No, right? don't, like, don't, you know, don't do it because I'm going to be honest. I It's it's a tough world out there for the random unknown debut writer. And like word of mouth is so real. And like. I am very, very lucky that like, you know, so it's been a month, tomorrow marks exactly one month to the day since publication day. And like, I think there has been a healthy amount of chatter 
and enthusiasm around the book. I mean, it hasn't propelled me to the top of the bestseller list, but like people are reading and responding. And that is purely because I am unabashed about like self-promoting. And like I, every, I, I, I've gotten some like random, I get like once or twice or three times a week, I get a random DM on Instagram or Twitter from just some person, a stranger who's read the book. And, you know, they tell me that it moved them or they loved it. Um, which like means the world and doesn't like totally nullify the pain of the one star Goodreads reviews that are just, like so cruel, but like, nevertheless, it means a lot. And what I say to them is like, tell everyone to read it. Right. So like, yeah, yeah tell your teachers at St. Andrews. Um, I mean, yeah, now I'm going to hold you to that. You have to do it. Also tell oh, all your friends and everyone you see on the street. <laughs> it's mm. funny. Cause we did, I don't know if you had exhibitions. Do you have anything like that? What are exhibitions? It's basically like final papers that we had a junior exhibition and a senior exhibition. Junior was on Goodbye Columbus by Philip Roth, which I'm going to say great book, great book, but like it's also really short and overdone. And so I think Foster Date explores the same kind of themes, but not taking place in the 1950s. Um, And then senior year, you got to choose a book and then you have like a, I don't even remember like a discussion. I remember my junior year, I was assigned, um, my friend Josue, if you're listening, Josue, I was really sad to be assigned to you because he was an amazing writer. And I was like, fuck this. I am just so not on his level. Um, and he had an amazing point about like how, oh God, what was the guy's name in Goodbye Columbus? Uh, oh God. Uh, was it Neil? Neil? The girl's name was Brenda. Boom. Neil, Neil Klugman. Uh, you're oh. talking about a right? Are you talking about, are you talking about someone else? No, no, I am talking about this. I don't yeah. know why I completely I right. forgot. And Brenda, yeah, from Short Hills. Brenda Patinkin. Yeah. And uh, no, I remember all this was to say that I remember how Josue had this line that was like, Neil trying to fit into the world of Brenda was like him putting on his tight Bermuda shorts or something like that. And I was like, I'm fucked. He just <laughs> won this argument. Um, sure. But anyway, so I, all that is to say that I will definitely reach out to my few contacts at. St. Andrews because sadly all my favorite teachers have retired yeah. after like 60 years of working there um, yeah. and yeah and and my last question for you is where can everyone buy your book where can they follow what you're doing and how can they support you that is a great question um well follow me on any social media platform uh namely twitter or instagram my handle is at p nash jenkins p as in peter even though that's not my actual first name i'm not going to tell you my actual first name because it's embarrassing but yeah p nash jenkins um and once you're there uh you will see a link to a link tree page uh that contains links to various book vendors uh you can buy i don't want to say wherever books are sold but you can buy it where a lot of books are sold um i mean obviously it's on amazon and it'll get to you fast but i feel a moral and cultural obligation to give a big shout out to all the local bookstores and independent booksellers who uh you know single-handedly keep the cultural enthusiasm for literature alive um so you know bookshop is this great website that um you know it's it's sort of like amazon but it facilitates sales through local bookstores um so bookshop's great um go into a bookstore and if they don't have it you should tell the person at the store to stock their shelves with it um but yeah, follow me on social media. I'm like pretty annoying on social media, but in a mostly harmless way. Um, and buy my book. Amazing. Well, thanks again. And bye, everyone. That was my pleasure. Thank you so much.